Good morning, church. My name is Donna Holtz. I'm a member of the University City Community Group. Um, this morning's reading is from 1 Timothy 1.18 through 3.17. You might want to pull your Bible out on this one. <laughs> Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier. May they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Hymenius and Alexander are two examples. I threw them out and handed them over to Satan so they might learn not to blaspheme God. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. I've been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. So a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? A church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil will cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. 
This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central Church. Good morning. My name is Josh Kim. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central Church. We're glad you could join us this morning as we continue our journey in 1 Timothy this morning. And uh, before I go on, I do need to publicly make a uh, ask for forgiveness as well as uh, ask for this because last week as I was talking about uh, the pastoral search team, I realized I forgot one name um, when I was mentioning the co-chair. Uh, I completely left out other co-chair with Gabby, and her name is Beth Thompson. So I need to ask for forgiveness for that, but yes, please. Let's give her a round of applause, and let's continue to pray for not only Beth, but the pastoral search team. One uh, fun fact about Beth is she's, uh, she's one of the original founding members of Christ Central Church, as we say she are. She's the OG, as they say, of them all. So uh, please do pray for her, and we're grateful for your faithful service in the season. Uh, not only for Beth, but for all the pastoral search team, please do check out the website, click on that, and pray, pray with us. That's like a prayer map for you, right, as we think about um, how, who's God going to send us uh, as a next pastor at Christ Central Church. Um, we're back in First Timothy, as you could tell. And let me just start off by saying, um, and many of you, I know it was very a challenging text as we read this morning. Uh, many, many godly people, right? There's so many godly people that disagree over some of the things that were read today. Um, obviously, there are lots of articles out there, countless books you could read upon, upon, a lot more people that are smarter and wiser than me debated on this, wrote their dissertations on this, and they write books on this. Um, especially in today's culture and context, this is debated over and over and over and over again. And the topic of discussion, obviously, as we talk about today, is the woman's leadership in the church. What does that mean for women to have leadership in the church? And you may be familiar with terms like egalitarian theology, where they say uh, equal in worth and also equal in roles. And some of you also heard, probably, heard complementarian theology uh, that says equal in worth but differ in roles. Again, a one Sunday morning worship will not do justice. Even defining that, parsing that out alone will probably take a long time to do so. So my goal is not to cover everything that is to know about those two topics per se, but my goal this morning, church, is to be faithful to our text and place this text, these verses, these commands as we find in the scripture in their proper context. To be able to place these verses in proper context. And my goal, again, is to not focus so much on where we differ per se, and we will have to touch upon that. We will have to land somewhere. But I hope to also highlight how God calls us together, men and women, to co-labor, to co-serve, and how God wants us to co-submit to one another as we grow together as a bride of Christ, the church of God. And how are we going to do that this morning? By asking this question, what is the purpose of the church. What is the purpose of the church? After all, that's what we find in today's text. Paul's giving instruction to how to govern a church. So what is the purpose of the church? Church, probably to sum it up best, is to make disciples, right? 
to make disciples. And that's what Jesus does, Jesus did during his ministry on earth. He walks with his disciples, and he commands his disciples to do the same in the great commandment in Matthew 28 as he ascends to heaven to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them, right? Apostle Paul does the same here in making disciples like Timothy, his protege, and planting churches like the one in Ephesus that we find here, and ultimately so that people can be discipled under the guidelines and the teachings of Christ. Church was a vehicle for the witness of the gospel and the discipleship of God's people in it. I want to be very sure that church wasn't and isn't the only way, right, to disciple, meaning training someone to follow Christ, but it is the heartbeat of the church to make disciples of God's people. Whether it is in the first century church that we find in this text today, or today's church, as we find the mission and the vision of the church, the purpose of the church is and should be the same. It is timeless truth to make disciples. And that's what we find in these chapters that you and I read. His letter to Timothy, Apostle Paul gives his protege how to preach, how to teach, how to guide, how to ultimately love and shepherd the church in Ephesus so that church will produce disciples. And that's why Paul says, to Timothy, he says, after t- telling him to pray, cling on to faith, Timothy. He says this in verse 3. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Verse 4, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. The man, Jesus Christ, he gave him his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message of God. God gave to the world at the just the right time. So church, that's the heartbeat of this letter. Heartbeat of the gospel. The main purpose of the church, to make disciples that are saved by Jesus Christ who will shine or who will testify to this truth so that people can see him and be bought at a price of Christ on the cross. And the follow-up question to that today is, how do we do that? How do we do that as a church of Christ? How do we function like that? And this call for discipleship, as we see in the church, is done under the authority of the Scripture and under the authority of the church. This is done through and under the authority of the church and under the authority of the Word of God. First, what we see is the under the authority of Scripture. Under the authority of Scripture. One of the wisdom saying my beloved professor would always make the entire class used to recite was this. He would say, beginning of every class, he would say, class, start with the Bible, not with the commentary, and the context is king. He would always make us recite that at every single class. Start with the Bible, not with the commentary, and context is king. My professor's heart was that we would not jump into commentaries right away as seminary students, other pastors' words or things, people that we like to follow, scholars, or even the cultural conversations today or people's arguments per se, but he would always encourage us to go to the Word of God first and foremost and start there. And I believe that is ever so needed for us when we look at this text today. Paul echoes that for us, doesn't he? He says, start with the Word of God. 
not with the world's commentary of the day, but we are make sure to look at the Word of God first and foremost and look at the context that Paul is giving these words in. Because as we saw from last week, the Word of God reveals to us not only what we are saved from, how we are to be saved. Knowing this and following this is at the heart of knowing Christ our Lord, is at the heart of being a disciple of Christ, to know what we're being saved from and saved towards, to know him as he reveals himself to us is at the heart of discipleship. And that's what Paul emphasizes again and again and again to Timothy. He instructs Timothy of instructions, guidance, the word of God, and reminds him of the words spoken to him. He urges him, cling to the faith of God. How? By clinging tightly to God's word against false teachers. An example of those false teachers whom argue perhaps they were elders who went astray in the church is given in verse 18. This is Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you. Based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier, may they help you fight well in the Lord's battle, Paul says. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear, for some have deliberately violated their consciousness. Conscience, and as a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Himenaeus and Alexander are two examples. I threw them out and handed them over to Satan. Why? So that they may not they learn to blaspheme. God. You see, in this, Paul urges Timothy to pray, to guard the message of the gospel as Paul reminds Timothy of a singular focus and the calling in verse 7. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles of this message about faith and truth. He says, I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. In this backdrop, church, in the context of Paul's warning of false teachers, the Addis added sensationalism to the clear teaching of the Word of God, Paul re-emphasizes to Timothy on the importance of teaching and faithfully learning what God speaks to the church is what we find in the next set of verses as well as the roles. And I emphasize both men and women in the church. Why? Again, because in that context, in that context, church, is what we find Paul speaking to both men and women. Both men and women. Verse 8, look at with me here. In verse 8, it says, In every place of worship, meaning place gathering of worship like this, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. Paul says, in every place of worship, in verse 8, speaking to the church, and what we must do is to realize Paul is speaking to both men and women in their tendencies, he observes, that God in the way of worship. Because in verse 9, when it says, and I want women to be modest, it's actually more better translated in the original Greek as likewise. Likewise, I want a woman to do this. Meaning, I want men, you were to follow this instruction. Likewise, women the same. The purpose behind those two instructions are basically the same. In verse 8, Paul tells the men, pray with hands lifted and be free from anger and controversy. It's not saying every single man here Raise your hands, right? Because most of us failed in the morning worship today. It's not saying that. It's basically saying oftentimes in the tendencies that we see is that men relish in disagreements at the time. And I would say not only at the time, but today as well. Just watch the news. Desire to be right, to be vindicated is a real threat. Anger in the church often masks as, well, I'm angry about this because it's righteous anger. Actually, is it really righteous anger? Or it's because you're not being heard. 
right? Paul's saying, do not give yourself to false anger and air out your dirty laundry rather than doing that. And don't set the tone like that, but come in humble submission and worship the Lord. Verse 9 is the same. Likewise, he's saying to women. Now, Paul tells the woman not to be focused on the outer appearance of the day. Now, it's not saying, women, be out of style today, right? It's not saying that. Please don't hear that, right? It's not saying do not adorn yourself, right? It's not saying no jewelry is allowed here. No, that's not absolutely what he's saying. Just like Paul is not telling all the men not to be angry, right? Um, he's not giving a universal instruction how to dress for Sunday, right? We're not giving you, uh, the scripture is not telling you what to dress on Sunday. Rather, his warning is that there were tendencies in the time to replace desire for worship with the focus on outer appearance at the time. In addition, we must remember again to put put verse 11 in its proper context when he says women should learn quietly and submissively. Again, Paul is not telling women not to speak, all right, or stay mute. That's not what he's saying. In its original Greek, women should learn is better actually understood in English as let a woman learn. Instead of saying women should learn, it is better to be translated as let a woman learn. Furthermore, here is where the original language of Greek is much better understood than the English. English word of quietly and submissively doesn't do justice to Paul's commands here. In Greek, when it says quietly, it does not convey a tone of complete silence, but rather that of reverence and humility in receiving God's teaching. It is saying quietly means come with reverence and submissiveness, um, humility, to God's teaching. The word submissively here in its original language emphasizes the heart of obedience, not blanket submission we may think of when we read in plain English today. So what we see in verse 11 is emphasis of the heart attitude and the posture towards obedience to the Word of God. Did you guys catch that? Verse 8 is talking about men's heart posture to the teaching of the Word of God. Verse 9 through 11 is woman's heart posture to the Word of God. So in different ways spoken, but the same message is given to both men and women to have the same heart posture attitude in coming to learn under the authority of the Word of God. Especially in the time and the culture where women were not often allowed to be seen as a worthy disciple, Paul is saying rather than excluding stifling women, he's saying let women learn with you. And telling Timothy, make room to make disciples for both men and women, just as Jesus had done. Teach women and men in prayer, but also in the Word of God faithfully is what he's emphasizing here and emphasizing how to learn and to grow under the authority of God's word. Robert Yarbrough, a professor um, of theology, writes, the goal is not making assertion about human nature and the superiority or inferiority of one sex in relation to the other. It is rather to describe what Paul wants Timothy to promote as a regular worship order. Regular worship order, and I may add, regular worship order that includes men and women alike. And again, Paul's warning is against disruption of what can take away from the heart of worship. He wants both men and women in respective tendencies 
to rather focus on growing in worship and under the sound teaching of Timothy and the elders. And that's at the heart of here today. Again, I urge you, church, to hearken back to Paul's heart in verse 5 of first chapter. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers will be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, all clear conscience, and genuine faith. And I need to emphasize this, church, because how often we have not done that, but rather became like false teachers who rattle on and make it all about what you and I want to see. So often in the church, we take these verses out of its place and out of its context, and we recognize it, right? And we've been in churches like that. And oftentimes, I'm not going to exclude Christ Central Church from that. We have often done, you ought to do this, or you should be like this. You better be like this. This is what the Scripture says, but we have missed the heart. And when we do that, we hurt one another. And what happens? God's witness is hurt. It's not just that we have offended one another, but God's witness, God's church is hurt. As a result, we're violating at the essence what Paul is telling us to do and not to do. And in turn, church does not do justice to God's heart of discipling God's people. Church, what we see in these verses is God's invitation for all to come and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus spoke disciples, disciples followed him. He did not stop women at the well from going and telling others about who Jesus was so others can come meet him. Paul, in planting churches and sending people out, did not use baseless chatter to hinder women's work at times. The Church of Christ stands today through the work of men and women who faithfully submitted under the authority of Scripture. At the heart of church's purpose, faithful submission to the authority of God's word, both men and women alike. Both men and women alike. The word of God, Jesus himself, is what is at stake. This is our call to return to God's revelation of himself in the word, to make room, to make space for all of us, men and women alike, to come to submit, mutually submit. Church, so when we say we want the church to be faithful to her teaching, what does that look like? Does that mean church must teach what you want to be taught and heard at all times? Absolutely not, isn't it? It's to come and sit under even most difficult teaching of the scripture that God commands us. This was a very difficult sermon to prepare in many ways. I've looked at the blank screen for two straight days at times, wondering, what can I say? <laughs> and oftentimes, you know, we want to skip over things like this and say, okay, let's go to something else. And I've heard at times people say, I want to leave the church uplifted, feeling better about myself. We ought to, not because the scripture uplifts you only, but in your humble submission to the word of the Lord, you're rebuked. Recognize, man, there's no way I could be saved because the word of God reveals my weakness. I'm uplifted, not by how good I feel in relation to how God says I'm bad. Uplifted because the scripture reminds me Christ alone uplifts me out of depth of my sin. I pray that Christ Central Church is a place like that. I pray that we approach the Word of God like that. 
humble submission to teach, to preach, to guide, to make disciples as Jesus commands, both men and women alike, fighting against anything that will hinder coming under the authority of God's word. Amen? And then we come to perhaps a little bit more difficult topic. Not only discipleship is done under the authority of the word of God, but also done under the authority of the church. One of the most famous South African proverbs is roughly translated as, a person is a person because of the other people. A person is a person because of the other people, or I am because you are. I am because you are. This African proverb is at the bedrock of South Africa's society, who is rooted in community. This saying highlights the reflection of what it takes to live in a true unity and explore what it means to work, live, and thrive together. Echoing this wisdom, I think we find the discipleship for what it means to live in true unity and exploring what it means to work, live, and thrive together is another way to say being disciples in a God's community together. And Paul here writes to us, for the church. And he says, discipleship under the authority of the church. Again, I'm not saying this only happens in the church, but again, the context is 1 Timothy is written for the church of Christ. Church. Keep that in mind as we come to the challenging teachings we find in Paul's words in chapter 12, verse 12 through 15. It says, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly for God made Adam first, and afterwards he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was a threat. But woman will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. And you're thinking, wait, 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 hold on here. Hold on, Pastor. Okay, let's read that one more time, right? Does it really say what it's saying? Okay, remember the context, church, okay? Stay with me on this. First, we must note that this is the New Testament church. Right? Paul is concerning the organization and government of the church. So the principles here apply to the church governance, elders, not a blanket statement of woman's role in a society. Okay, context is he's speaking to the church. And sadly, many have weaponized this and took it out of its context. And church has done that as well, telling women to sit down, go home, right? Instead of seeing this in Paul's instruction and his love for the church, people have argued for blanket rule distinction and applied it blanketly in the places where it should not be. Today, we have to ask, had you not read the Bible? Right? There are women leaders throughout the scripture. There are women judges, women prophetess, those who spoke the word of God, taught, disciple, guided the church. In our today, this is not saying women cannot be anywhere but at home. That's not what it's saying at all. The scripture does not I repeat, does not prohibit women in leadership in general. It's not saying that. In fact, I read in the news this week how minority women, especially, are not given a seat at the table in the upper leadership. This is not right, right? This should grieve all of us, especially church like us, right? This is not how God designed it. We must repent, including our church and church period of inequity and not listening. We have not done this well at all, especially as Church of Christ. I'm not excusing our church again. We must do better. We must repent and recognize inequity happens. 
But here is another context that we must remember, again in verse 8, in every place of worship. Here what Paul is saying in this context, in this place of worship, the guidance he will be given is in the New Testament church today, which includes the church of this era. And what he instructs is that elders, and in this case, qualified men, few qualified men are given the responsibility of the authority of teaching and guarding the doctrine and the church. But the emphasis here, again, is the special teaching office only in discerning the doctrine, especially against false teaching. Remember, the warning is against false teaching. I like how pastor theologian Tim Keller puts it best here. He says, elders are leaders who admit or dismiss people from the church. They do the quality control of members' doctrine. These are the only thing the elders exclusively can do. Others can teach, disciples serve, witness. We do not believe that 1 Timothy 2.11 precludes women teaching the Bible to men or speaking publicly. To teach with authority refers to disciplinary authority over the doctrine of someone. For example, when an elder says to a member, you're telling everyone that they must be circumcised in order to be saved, that is destructive. Non-biblical teaching which is hurting people spiritually. You must desist from it or you will have to leave the church. That is the teaching authority. It belongs only to the elders. John Frame, another theologian, adds, Reformed theology has often distinguished between special teaching office, which consists of the ordained elders, and the general teaching office, which includes all believers. Uh, he says, We unanimously, or the committee that he's part of, holds that Scripture excludes women from special teaching office of elders, Scripture plainly teaches this limitation. But Scripture says with equal plainness that women are not excluded from the general teaching office. Paul is essentially forbids women to the exercise of the special office, but also limits the teaching. But here too, Paul has in mind the special office rather than the general. I know this is very challenging in this climate today. So I do know there's a lot to be done and dissected here, but my challenge for us to let it sit there for a little bit. Let the scripture stand on its own for a while. And one factor to highlight again is this is not all men, right? I'm not saying all men have this authority, but a few qualified men, which we'll highlight in a little bit, called elders, very select few. As someone says, 2% of the church right, are given this burden, I would say, responsibility to guard the doctrines of the church. And this is a method, as far as I see from the scripture, that Paul chooses for the church of Christ. And some of us may think, come on, Paul, get on with the times of today, right? Like you're outdated. Or even worse, some will say, well, Jesus didn't do it like that. He was surrounded by women all his life. He included women in the leadership, right? He included all the disciples to come. Paul, come on, get on with the program. And as if Paul hears our rejections, our questions, he backs up this claim with the teaching by not referring to cultural norms of the day or saying that this applies to you only or, well, I think this way, this is Paul's idea. Rather, what he does is he refers back to the creation story, doesn't he? Genesis narrative. He comes to this based upon the timeless truth about how created men and women. Verse 13, it says, For men... 
God made Adam first, afterwards he made Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was, not, the woman was deceived and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Church, when it says God made Adam first, afterwards he made Eve, Paul indicates that men and women are equal before God, but created order is still in effect. Sexual difference is God's created design, is what he's saying. And furthermore, in verse 14, he's not saying it's the woman's fault, right? Since it doesn't make any sense, right? Because we know Adam as a representative is a failure, and his failure is our failure. So again, Paul is summarizing the Genesis narrative in general of how created order came to be, and the fall of sin came to be. And verse 15 links that by showing how Jesus was saved. Again, the verse is not saying woman has to have child to be saved. After all, Paul did not get married. So he's excluding himself in this great story at all, right? He talks about the grace of celibacy. Rather, what he's highlighting is God's divine design and God's plan of redemption. Highlighting the Genesis teaching of 1 through 3 and saying this is God's revealed will for us based upon this, how God is going to do the redemption work. As Herman Bavink, a theologian, highlighted, the grace of God does not eradicate the nature of God's created order, but grace restores it to its original purpose and intent a very good as God declares it. So Paul here stands on Scripture's teaching on his guidance for the elders' leadership. In addition, in fact, Paul is imitating how Jesus taught when he was ministering on earth. Christ, when he's teaching about marriage, in men and women's relationship, in Mark 10, refers to the same creation story. Mark 10, verse 5 through 9, but Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your, to your hard hearts, but God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one, since they are no longer two, but one. Let no one split apart what God has joined together. Here, what Paul does is to use Scripture to stand under the authority of the Scripture to teach the authority of the church. Paul does is to teach the Scripture, use the Scripture, to stand under the authority of Scripture, not his own saying to stand under the authority of the church. I think the more important question that we ought to ask then is, what kind of authority of the church are these elders supposed to represent? What kind of authority are these elders supposed to represent? Again, because many of us have experienced and participated at times, and I have to say myself included, in the false picture of this elder authority that use these roles as weapons in discriminating, abusing, and oppressing rather than modeling what it's supposed to be. And again, as if Paul hears our concern, and again, Paul warns the church of false teachers, remember, of Hymenaeus and Alexander, who has abused his authority as elders. So what he does next is to show us what the elders must look like. He's saying, Submit under this elder's authority and rule, but look at what the elders are supposed to be. That's what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be church leader, he desires an honorable position. So a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. 
He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home. He must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? A church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil will cause him to fall. Also, people outside of the church must speak well, love him, so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. Church, what we find here is not misogynistic, shutting up women, oppressive, harmful, toxic masculinity, toxic patriarchy, baseless cheddar type of elder authority, but the complete opposite of that. Well, we're not going into too much details and parse it out. We'll do that in later time. But what it's highlighting here in these verses is qualification of being an elder, and you could summarize it like this. Be like Jesus Christ. Elders, be like Jesus Christ. All that is described here, there's only one who could demonstrate this beauty perfectly. Because I know my elders, our elders, and I believe our elders will not be offended and me as your pastor is including in that, if I say this, they're great men, but not like this. Right? If you expect to go up to an elder and say, oh, let's see, do you qualify for this? I'm not sure. None of us will be able to do so. And not just our men, our elders in our church, but all of humanity, all the elders in the world, not one will be able to qualify for all because only one can. Christ so as I stand here to teach this morning, as you come to our elders to, for prayers afterward, our heart, the elder's heart is not that of, I got it all down, come and sit under my teaching and preaching, but a that of a tremendous godly fear. To stand before God in this role, in a way, I don't know how and why God chose to do it this way, because even Jesus warns that not all should strive to be a teacher's a.k.a. elders who teach others. The burden must not just be that will I be respected, liked by people, but I must stand before the Lord. I must stand before the Lord and be responsible for the sound doctrine of the church and must answer to the Lord for the call that he places upon us. Because standard is absolutely high, isn't it? Elder's call is to be like Christ and pursue Christ. How? Through the renewing of our mind, to grow in the gospel humility, to have the posture of John the baptizer that says, I'm not he, he is greater than I am. The one who says, I'm the worst of all, only Jesus saves kind of attitude, posture we talked about before. If that's the authority of the church, then sign me up to be part of that. That's the biblical picture of complementary theology in its beauty. And if we have that kind of authority in the Church of Christ today, there will be absolutely be a no place for spiritual abuse. There will not be a place of misogyny, toxic patriarchy, baseless chatter. Rather, it will be a place of Philippians 2, type of posture where we fight to outdo one another in gospel humility, considering ourselves Lord and the very ones we're called to serve and protect and our elders will be at the forefront, modeling, imitating what Paul says when he tells people, follow my example as I follow Christ. 
Under that type of authority is what Paul is telling the church to function. Under that kind of authority is what Paul is telling Church of Christ to thrive and to grow. Under that type of authority is accountability you and I must seek to strive so you and I could make disciples and be witness to the watching world. To submit to the example of godly authority that says, I cannot, apart from Christ, to exemplify for you 1 Timothy 3's qualification, but to humbly submit before the Lord to be renewed so you could follow after the Lord. So you and I both together as a church of Christ can reflect 1 Timothy 1, 5, where it says, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers will be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. It's hard. I hear it. It's a hard teaching at that at times. There is a Korean proverb that my mother used to, or I should say, still to this day, often recites to me every time I see her. And this proverb goes something like this. The proverb says, Rice plants lower their heads as they grow ripe. Rice plants lower their heads as they grow ripe. It means as you mature more, as you grow in knowledge and grace more, you ought to become more humble than the proud. Because rice plants, as they grow, their plants often lower their head. As you grow more, you ought to become more humble rather than proud. And church, that's the posture I want to preach to myself, as well as the posture I would ask all of us to have as we approach this topic. Our heart, my heart, is that we'll do our best from the church to continue to wrestle in this, right? Continue to wrestle. How can we love and be intentional to fight against sin? And I repeat, sin that stifles woman's voice and how purposefully and beautifully women are created in God's image. It is our commitment, heart's church, to listen, to have woman's voice be present in making key decisions to learn from and under and with our sisters in Christ. To fight against toxic patriarchy, misogyny, not to mention abuse, with humble attitude and heart, with wanting to learn more first and foremost to be under God's authority in the word to show us how to love, outdo one another in loving each other. I thought about our church's name a lot throughout this week as I looked at the blank screen, wondering how can I share, how can I teach, how can I be responsible for this before the Lord after this, right? I thought about our church's name a lot. I love our church's name. I prayed a lot through our church's name. Christ Central Church. After all, Christ is in it. Our street name is in it. But more importantly, our desire to have Christ at the center is represented in it. But that's not important. What's important is the church part. Do you know that? I know many of us come from a variety of church traditions in our background. It could have represented any purpose, really, meaning the vision of that particular church. Quite often, denominational distinctives, they highlighted how the church is formed to their job, to their best of their ability. 
Presbyterians, Baptist, AME, UMC, all those things, or non-denominational, right, by not having anything, right? But ultimately, they're just that. We often cling so much onto the front name and front way the government works, but we often forget the ultimate hope is not in the front name, rather the name that is called the church. Because our ultimate hope is not how we govern, how we organize, but our ultimate hope I find again and again, same for us today and for all throughout eternity, is not that we're Christ-central church, but we are Christ-central church, bride of Christ. We're still work in progress. We still need to grow in our understanding of the scripture. We still need to grow in understanding and practicing We still fail. We have not done this well. But our hope is that gates of Hades will not overcome our efforts. As the Gospel Matthew reminds us, why? Because Jesus Christ is building the church. And you and I are the bride of Christ, church of the living God. Let's pray. Let's pray, church, as we come to the Lord's table. Um, And let's ask the Lord. Um, Some of us, um, I know this is not an easy topic to wrestle with. Again, invitation is continue to wrestle in it together. Our posture, I hope, that we can take is to to submit together, mutually, and to learn, to lean in, to do this better. And perhaps first and foremost, we as myself, as a pastor, must repent the ways I have not done this well ways I became like baseless, chattering, false teachers, adding rather than clarifying what the gospel still stands today. Let's pray that, shall we? Let's repent before the Lord as we come to the Lord's table. Father, as we come to the Lord's table, we recognize in our imperfect efforts, we have hurt one another more than affirmed and encouraged, and oftentimes modeled for our children false picture rather than mutual heart love submission under the authority of God's word. So we pray as we come together, sitting under your guidance to be discipled as your people. Teach us to learn to follow after you all the days of our life. As we come to this Lord's table, teach us, Lord, to submit, to love, and to recognize you have bought us at a price. Christ, let me pray. Amen.